Thank you for that choir. That was a fantastic uh, song. It's great to see everybody in there worshiping as well. What a privilege it is for us to have our children with us today. I've already mentioned it. Uh, usually they are over in the other building worshiping and participating in worship activities that are more on their level. Uh, not to say that what we're doing is something they cannot handle, but sometimes their energy is a little bit more than what ours is. So that's just a part of who they are. There is much to be gained, though, by adults and children worshiping together. I was thinking this morning that the Israelites, when they worshiped, um, rarely do you see, in fact, I don't know if I ever see in the scriptures where they separated for their times of worship, where families would say, well, the young people are going to go worship over here and the old people are going to be over here. They came together as one body, and it is healthy for us to do the same thing, to come together as one. But there is much to be gained for our children to be able to experience what we call big church. And as adults, we benefit from the freedom and the energy that they themselves bring to the table when we come to worship. So uh, our plan is anytime we have a fifth Sunday moving forward, our plan is for us to have children with us in our worship service. I think that's a very healthy thing. You know, we've told people for years that children's ministry is so important to the church. Most statistical surveys report that uh, around 90% of all people who receive Christ will do so before the age of 11 or 12. Well, if we truly believe that, then we need to make sure that we are giving our best to our children's ministry. Last week, I celebrated the leadership of Deb Nodine and then Ariana. She was in the second service. I was able to celebrate with her as well. They, along with several others, have been champions of our children's ministry over the past several months. We went through a period of transition, and these individuals stepped up to the plate, helping to make ministry happen with our children. And I cannot say thank you enough to those individuals. But I will also add that they need more intentional leadership. And as such, I want to give you a heads up regarding our children's ministry moving forward. At our upcoming local church conference, the pastor, the board, and the finance committee are recommending a budget that includes the addition of a full-time children's ministry director. Again, we spend money on all sorts of other things that we say are very important, and I would even say that they are important. Yet 90% of all people who will receive Christ will do so before the age of 11 or 12. If that is genuinely the case, shouldn't we be more intentional, even in our spending, to help reach as many kids as possible with the message of Jesus Christ? Now, maybe you're concerned about the cost of such an expansion. I worry more about the cost of not doing this. The past few years, this church has seen a significant number of deaths. This past week, we had a funeral for an 85-year-old lady who had been a great servant to the church for many, many years. I remember about a year ago, as we prepared for one of these funerals, Mr. Thomas said to me, he said, we're losing some great people. What are we going to do to reach others who will fill their shoes? That was an incredibly wise question. 
and it speaks to why we are moving in this direction. It has been said that the church is always one generation away from extinction, and that is true. But I don't want it to be this generation or the next. I wonder how many preachers, how many missionaries, how many district officials, how many Christian teachers, how many Christian mechanics, how many Christian businessmen and women will come out of the children's ministry of Trinity Wesleyan Church. I wonder how many new families will be reached I wonder how many current families will be better equipped, better prepared for life together. I wonder at how great a difference this will make in our community now. Not just down the road, but now. Perhaps I am a little biased. I confess to you already, my child was one of the children that was up here. I am invested in the children's ministry but not just because Michael is in the children's ministry, but because I believe that God wants to do great things through our kids. And I hope that you will support that as well. That was the announcement I talked about on Facebook. We're looking for full-time children's ministry workers. I will tell you, the goal is not to have someone come in and take everything over and everybody else sit back and say, we're good because we've got someone else who's going to do it. They're going to need you and me and everybody else to come alongside them to help them so that they can be effective. One of the things we've talked about, and I know that today's service is not all about children's ministry, but one of the things we've talked about is children's ministry does not just take place at church. It takes place at home. It takes place with our parents. It takes place everywhere we go. If you're depending on the church to do everything for your kids, then your kids are in trouble because they're going to need more than that. But we want to make sure as a church we're at least doing our part. And that's the purpose of sharing that with you. I do want to share with you a little bit from God's Word uh, regarding the Easter season. A few weeks ago, I shared a little bit about the Passover. This was a Jewish ritual that was intended to help people remember God's deliverance from the land of Egypt. The primary symbol that is noted most often specifically within Christianity is that of the blood of the lamb that was spread over the doorposts. We'll look at this a little bit more, but the point that I want you to see is that God was using this to foreshadow what would take place generations later through Jesus Christ, as he would become the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus would become the sacrifice, laying down his life with the result of him being our redemption. We are saved from certain death because of what he has done. But there is another significant symbol that is found within the Passover story. In fact, in Jewish circles, the Passover feast is not often referred to as the Passover feast. Even though it is a part of the story, it is referred to as the feast of unleavened bread. You see, as Israelites prepared for the Passover, they were instructed to be ready to move. There was no time to play around or even to allow their bread to rise. They needed to be ready to go. So God instructed them to prepare bread for their journey, but to prepare it without without yeast. In other words, unleavened. 
The yeast is what causes the bread to rise, but that takes time. In doing so, they would still have something to provide for their physical nourishment, but they didn't have to wait. They were ready to go when the Lord said it was time to go. Now, from a practical standpoint, remembering this aspect of the Passover can be a beautiful thing. For future generations, it will suggest that no matter how difficult their circumstances may seem, God can change things in a moment's notice. When neighboring armies would come in and steal crops, when they would take Israelites captive or even destroy towns, the people know that they can call upon God and he can deliver them at any moment. But such deliverance would come at a price. And that's where the blood of the lamb comes into play. You see, John the Baptist would describe Jesus as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Earlier, as Greg read, he read a passage that says Jesus was led like a lamb to the slaughter. I want you to imagine for a moment that your loved one, perhaps even a child, receives a horrible diagnosis. The doctors are clear as to what is next. Death is near. As you look upon your loved one, the thought enters your mind. I would do anything if I could swap places with you. The reason is because you simply love that child so much. And if you could trade places with them in that moment and you would allow them to be able to live and to experience life and all of the things that come with it, you'd be willing to do it because you love them that much. It's not that you actually want to die. It's simply that you'd be willing to do it in their place so that they could live. Well, that is exactly what Jesus did for you and for me. As in the Passover experience, Jesus became the sacrificial lamb. He knew that the wage of sin was death, so he took our place. He willingly laid down his life so that we would receive eternal life. You know, it's interesting that Jesus refers to himself in multiple ways. At times he says, I am the door. I am the gate. He defines himself as the way and the truth and the life. He declares that nobody comes to the Father except through me. All of these images fit perfectly with Passover, as the blood of the Lamb enabled them to be saved. You know, I read a passage to you earlier from Matthew 26. And actually, if you look, it's a much longer passage than what I read. I think I only read verses 26 through 29. But really, this is the story of the Last Supper. As Jesus is sitting down with his disciples, he's sharing with them about the beautiful things that are about to take place. But it doesn't sound all that beautiful. He talks about his body that is being broken and his blood being shed. Understand that they had a love for Jesus. And the mere idea that his body would be broken and his blood would be shed would have been a very uncomfortable message for them. In this passage, Jesus uses certain images, certain things to represent his body and his blood. 
He uses bread to represent the body of Jesus Christ. Remember the symbols within Passover. You have the unleavened bread, and then you have the blood, which will represent through wine. He uses bread to represent the body of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24, we see that the Apostle Paul is explaining the New Testament practice of celebrating the Lord's Supper. He's actually referring back to what Jesus does with his disciples here in Matthew 26. In the King James Version, it says, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Now, no doubt this verse has been used thousands of times within the church as we celebrate what we often refer to as either communion or the Lord's Supper. Some will actually refer to it as the Eucharist. It's an interesting concept because the truth is that in fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, not a single bone of Jesus' body is actually broken. Yet it says, this is my body broken for you. Yet what's important is the fact that Jesus, Jesus was so willing to allow his body to be broken. And the argument could be made that it was broken. Let me explain. Although no bones were broken, he certainly surrendered his body even unto death. And the abuse he endured was incredibly significant. If you'll remember back to the movie, The Passion of the Christ. Think back to the scene where Jesus is being whipped. They use these long leather straps with shards of bone or some type of pottery that were attached to the end so that when they would bring that whip down across his back, the bone and the shards of pottery would dig down into the skin, causing great suffering. But that wasn't the worst part. Then they would pull the whip back, and when they pulled the whip back, the bone and the pottery that had dug down into the skin would literally rip the skin up with it. And then they would do it all over again. Over and over and over again. The Roman soldiers who exacted this punishment against Jesus, they were professionals. They knew that their job was not to kill this individual. They had done this before. Their job was to punish, to make him suffer, to make, make it so unappealing to commit crime that you would be afraid to go against them. They did their job and they did it well. After the beating that takes place, they do something that's a little bit different from what they do with everybody else. They take a branch from a basically a, a thorn bush, but it's not like a little thorn bush. I remember my mom, she used to have these roses and there were these little tiny thorns on it. And I always pictured that whenever I looked at the, the story of the crown of thorns, but man, it was nothing like that. Uh, you're talking about thorns that were likely close to an inch in length at least. And they take this this branch, and they mold it into basically a crown. And then they take it and they, they press it down on his head, not just setting it there, but they press it down to where drops of blood begin to flow from where basically it is puncturing the skin. Can you imagine how much pain Jesus had to endure 
as he goes through this experience, can you imagine as the blood and the sweat and the tears and even the mud from around him as he's been thrown to the ground while he was being whipped, can you imagine how difficult it would have been even for him to be able to see what was going on around him? That is a horrible image. Why would Jesus be so willing to do such a thing? Why would he be willing to endure such abuse when he himself had done no wrong? The Bible answers that question. Jesus said in John 15, 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. He did it for love. Every time Jesus took a whip across his back, he did it because he loved you. He did it because he loved you. He did it because he loved you. Every single time. It wasn't because, well, this is what I have to do. He did it because he loved you. In John 10, 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And that is exactly what Jesus did. Paul writes in Romans 5, 7, and 8, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners... Not after we decided we're going to make something of ourselves. We're going to clean ourselves up and then we'll be worthy of being saved. Then somehow God might love us and he'd be willing to die for us. He doesn't wait for any of that. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The point is that Jesus willingly died for us. He willingly went to the cross, surrendering his body even unto death. But let me suggest to you that there is another application regarding the body of Christ being broken today. As I prepared for this message, I did what everybody else does. When you hear something, you immediately go to Google to see what you can find. When you type in the phrase, broken body of Christ... There are many images that appear of a broken church body, but we're not talking about the physical body of Christ. We're talking about the church. You see, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27, it tells us that we are now the body of Christ. And this makes sense. As the Spirit of God dwells in us, therefore we represent God to the world around us. So where does the brokenness come into play? In many places around the world, the church is very much broken. I'm not talking about those outside the body of Christ. I'm talking about those inside the body. I'm not saying that the church has ever been perfect. I'm just saying that there was a time that the church basically gave a good reflection of Christ to the rest of the world. Just as Jesus said that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, we should be able to say that if you have seen me, you have seen the Son. You have seen the one true living God alive in me. It was the Apostle Paul who said, be imitators of me just as I also imitate Christ Jesus. 
He wasn't claiming perfection, but he was committed to a life that would honor God. He was willing to be the body of Christ. I feel that such devotion is becoming a thing of the past within the church. We no longer spend time in God's word on a regular basis. We no longer serve as the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to a broken world, and therefore we are just as broken as they are. We no longer see worship of the Almighty God as an honor, but rather an obligation. We go to church because it's Sunday and that's what we're supposed to do. We do it because, well, that's what I was taught when I was a kid. No, we have the privilege of coming into the presence of an almighty God where two or three are gathered in his name. There he is in the midst. He inhabits the praises of his people, which means that when we come to a place like this, surrounded by all these other people, the one person that matters here is him. That's why we're here. It's not because we have to. And it is a privilege to be here with him. We no longer see holy living within the body as required, but rather as optional. And in many cases, the things that God's word wants to find as being sin has been redefined not by the world, but even by the church to appear less offensive. In essence... We have become like a mirror with cracks running all through it. People who look at us may see bits and pieces of Christ, but it is always a distorted view of what God is really like. Well, the time has come for the body of Christ, the church body, to be made whole again. It is time that we get back to our foundation. It is time that we once again seek God with all of our hearts. You see, God knew exactly how broken the church would become. As Jesus allowed his blood to be shed, he was offering the church along with all of humanity the opportunity to experience true redemption. It's as if we were slaves and he was buying us back, buying our freedom for us. The slave owner enjoyed our services and he wanted to keep us around. But Jesus comes along and says, I'll pay the price for him. I'll pay the price for her. I want them to go free. Romans chapter 3 verse 25 says that God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. In other words, Jesus shed his blood so that we could be made right with God. We could be made at one with God. It's as if sin never existed in the first place. Between us and him, we are right. There's one last image that I want to share from our passage today. As Jesus is participating in the Lord's Supper, he makes a statement regarding the fact that this is the last time he'll do this for a while. He says, I will not drink from this cup of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. In this reference, Jesus is setting the stage for a great banquet feast that will come in heaven. 
He's talking about a day that will come when all those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus will gather for a great meal seated around this table and we'll see all kinds of people present there. There'll be biblical heroes, people like John and Peter and Andrew and Paul and you'll have Moses and all of these kings and incredible people that we look at with admiration from the scriptures. Aside from that, there will be people like Billy Graham and Martin Luther and John Wesley and John Calvin. Maybe we'll see some family members, people that we loved and cared for, people with incredible respect, family members that have gone on before us. Who knows, there may even be some people there we weren't expecting to make it. But the highlight will not be all of those people at that meal. The highlight will be the ability to sit in the presence of Jesus. You know, Jesus tells the story of a great banquet feast in Matthew 22. In that passage, Jesus tells of a master who sent out invitations to this great wedding feast. He sends out the invitations and he basically sends it out to all the quote-unquote important people. They don't want anything to do with this banquet feast. One has something else they need to do. They need to go somewhere else. The rest of them, basically, they assault the one who sent, who brought the invitation in the first place. The master becomes furious. But he is determined to still hold this banquet feast. So he sends out invitations a second time, but this time when he sends it out, he says, I want you to go out and I want you to go to every single individual you can find. It doesn't matter where they are. I want you to take this invitation. I want you to bring them in. And they come and they come and they come. As the banquet begins to take place, the master sees one individual who's missing something. He's not wearing his wedding clothes. It's a wedding banquet. Scripture tells us that the master takes that one individual and he orders that he be removed and thrown outside. I'll tell you the truth, it's kind of a little bit of a confusing passage, but I want you to use this as a parallel for a moment. There was a time that the gospel message was assumed to primarily be for the Jews. Even Jesus at times talked about the fact that he was a Jew. And at one point he had a woman who came and she basically is looking for scraps and crumbs. And uh, Jesus says to her basically, what do you have to do with me? You're a Gentile and I'm a Jew. You see, there was a sense of this was just for the Jews, but the Jews seem to have rejected the gospel message. You know, it was always Jesus' plan for the message to go beyond the Jews. Jesus spent time with Samaritans. He spent time with Gentiles. He spent, this was not a new thing. Go back to his own family heritage. Did you know that there were those in his family heritage that were not Jewish? You look at the family tree that's listed there in the book of Matthew. In his family heritage, in his line, you have Rahab, the prostitute. You know, Rahab was not a Jew. Rahab was from Jericho. She was from the land of Canaan. Yet somehow she makes it into the line of David and even the line of Christ. The gospel message was always supposed to be for the entire world, not just for one people group. Unfortunately, many 
among the Jews would reject this offer of salvation. So God would declare that this is for everyone else too, and he invites everyone in, and as he brings them in, the only catch is this. You cannot make it into this banquet feast just because you were invited. You see, every individual in here, God died for you. Jesus Christ died for you so that you could have life. And the offer of salvation, the invitation is there, but you must respond to the invitation. He shed his blood to pay the price for you, and now he simply says, you must believe in me. The reality is, the price has been paid through the blood of Jesus Christ, the body that was broken for you. But what you do with it will determine whether you're ready for that great banquet feast. I want to challenge you this morning in this area. As we go through the Easter season, and we've got a couple weeks left of it, I want to challenge you to make this more than a historical story. What does the sacrifice of Jesus Christ mean to you? How has your life changed even today? If you have responded to the grace of Jesus Christ, you have a great banquet feast that awaits you. But if you have not responded, if you are not walking in a way that honors him, you may see the banquet feast but have to leave before the meal is actually served. I don't want that to be the case. My challenge to you is for you to make sure your heart is right with God. Jesus Christ has already offered the forgiveness. All you got to do is receive it. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you, Lord, your word tells us that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness the very moment that we confess our sins to you. But we don't want to have to deal with the punishment for sin. Thank you that, first of all, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to receive our punishment for sin. But Lord, I pray that every individual in this room would make sure that their hearts are right with you. That when that day comes, there will be no fear as to whether or not we're in a good place, whether or not we're okay, whether or not we are ready, whether or not we have been justified by your grace. Or make our hearts right with you. Where we have allowed sin to remain, I pray that in this moment you would forgive those sins, never to hold them against us again. I pray that you would help us to live as those who have been redeemed, not continuing to live like slaves, even though we've been set free. I pray that you would allow us to live in freedom and fullness. Lord, as we continue through this Easter season, I pray that each one of us would seek after you more than anything, realizing that what drove you was your incredible love for us. May we live with an incredible love for you as well. In Christ's name we pray, amen. It is a blessing to have the kids. I will tell you, I had a video clip I was going to have you watch, and I thought it might be too graphic for the kids. It was from the Passion of the Christ movie, and I decided not to do that this morning. But I do want to encourage you, recognize the sacrifice of Jesus was significant, but it's only because of his love for you. Thank you for being with us this morning. Go in peace.